Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here together today. We have just celebrated the birth of your son, the gift that you gave that ultimately would save us from our sins. But uh, many folks are not able to make it today for one reason or another. But let us always rejoice. Let us keep that spirit, that spirit that he taught us on how to be, to have the spirit of Christmas all year long. This we ask in his name. Amen. Okay. Well, let's worship our Lord. Well, Rick, we want to thank you for coming even when you're in pain. We know that this is not easy for you, and so thank you. Um, the suffering servant thought this was uh, appropriate. Jesus's life began in the midst of, a, of persecution and peril. He came on a mission <clears throat> of love and mercy sent by the Father. An angel announced his conception and gave him his name. The heavenly host sang out in glorious anthem at his birth. By an extraordinary star, the very heavens indicated his coming. He was the most illustrious child ever born. The holy child of Mary, the divine son of God. And yet, no sooner did he enter our world than Herod decreed his death and labored to accomplish it. Warned by God in a dream, Joseph fled Bethlehem at night, taking Mary and the baby Jesus to Egypt until Herod's death finally made it safe to return. The son of the eternal father, Jesus, entered time and was made in the likeness of man. He assumed our human nature with all of its infirmities and weaknesses and capacity for suffering. He came as a child and as the, one of the poorest parents. His entire life was one long pathway of humiliation. And now he is in heaven, no longer limited by time and space. And someday he will come again, this time in glory, to take us to himself. And I want to add to our uh, precious Billy Graham's words that he was there before he came to suffer and to bear our pain. He was unlimited by time. He was unlimited by space. He is the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe, creator that emptied himself, the Lord.
when I read God's word, I wind up with a question. What, what, what do I do about this? Psalm 15 begins with a question and then gives a very concise answer to the question. So it's a fulfilling psalm to read. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? There's the question. He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and works the, speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. 
in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Good, good thing to remember. If you would like to stand with me, we can recite the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Give me heed to what we say. News, news, Jesus Christ was born today. Ox and ass before him bow, and he is in the manger now. Christ is born today. Our New Testament reading today comes from the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to, to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom righteousness and devotion to God while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin to cleanse us and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds have our responsive reading. God of glory, your splendor shines from a manger in Bethlehem, where the light of the world is humbly born into the darkness of human night. 
Open our eyes to Christ's presence in the shadows of our world, so that we in become beacons of your justice and defenders of all for whom there is no room. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the gifts we give today, we give freely. We give because you gave, not just because you gave from us to us, and that, and that you call for us to give back. Those are all important. But because you have shown us how wonderful it is to give, to share with others, to be, to be a gift to others. Lord, as your son was a gift to us. So we ask that the, that the gifts given today be used to, to, that others may come to know you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let rise for the doxology. Well, I trust that you've had a good Christmas, good Christmas time, and uh, it's good to be back together again. Is it not? Yes. It is. One day, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, we're going to continue our study in Genesis, and uh, I've entitled this "Spiritual War in the Heavenlies." And what I, what I want to talk about is the heavenly war that's going on, the spiritual war that's going on uh, in the heavenlies. And our text, um, I'm going to read from verse 8 through verse 19, but we're just going to talk about 11 through 19 um, this morning. So, but the 8, eight, and, eight through 10 are just for context. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Okay, if you remember the back story, uh, mankind fell, Adam and Eve took of the forbidden fruit. Uh, But the Lord called to the man, where are you? And he, that is Adam, answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. So if you remember, we talked about uh, there was inner turmoil was one of the things that was, uh, and, and shame were entered into the human race. And then beginning of verse 11. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the f- tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, <laughs> I love this, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. That was her fault. <laughs> Don't look at me, Lord. <laughs> Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. (laughs) So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. 
You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you'll speak to us, each one of us, out of your word. Thank you that your word brings life to us. And even though the word talks about death, uh, it is the source of life for us. And, um, and there are good things and bad things in your word, Lord. There's, there's stuff that there's warnings and admonitions, but there's also encouragement and uplifting and hope and life and all, the, all of those things, Lord. We thank you that your word is, is realistic, deals with men as they are, and also deals with hope and life as it is as well. So encourage us today from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, this then is more of the effects of the fall. And we see that then that, you know, following the fall of man, Adam and Eve taking to the forbidden fruit, um, that man is still accountable to God. And man went from meeting with God as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day to hiding among the trees. So, so here's, you know, here we see just, just in an instant, man moved from having, walking with God in the cool of the day and in fellowship with God and enjoying God's presence to being afraid of God's presence. And what it points out is that as men, we are accountable to God whether we like it or not. Okay. And this, I, you know, this is a, this is a, a message, I believe, to, the, to our world, to so many who reject God. They are accountable to God. They may not like that, but, but that doesn't stop them from being accountable to him. Every person on the face of the earth who has ever lived and will ever live and lives presently is going to give an account to God. Um, we can't escape that. Well, the first thing that happened is that God holds the serpent, Adam and Eve, accountable for what they have done. One commentator says, says it this way. The blessing has fallen on hard times. So we saw Adam and Eve then blessed in the garden, everything provided for them. And then this commentator says, and Adam and Eve have discovered that there is no such thing as autonomy. Isn't that a beautiful statement? There is no such thing as autonomy. We talked about that uh, a couple weeks ago. That um, we think, that man, mankind thinks, well, if I can just get independent of God, my life will be fine. Well, sorry, it isn't going to happen. There's no such thing as autonomy. We are either dependent upon God or we are dependent upon our sinful nature. And we are subject to the sinful nature and Satan's plot. Before the fall, 
Men did not have to choose God. Now they have to make a deliberate choice for him. They have to choose dependency. Now there's something in, the, you know, in our human spirit that says, I don't want to be dependent on anybody. I want to be independent. And yet God calls us to dependency. <clears throat> With the fall, God is now outside of our reach. We have a yearning in our hearts for goodness and for relationship with God. And every man, I believe, on the face of this earth has a yearning. There's something deep within them that is a yearning for God that only God can fulfill. You know, as, they, as it says in, I think it was the four spiritual laws, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every man, God-shaped hole, and only God can fill that. Um, so we, we yearn, every person yearns for God. And the only way that it is completed is by a relationship with God. One commentator uh, says this. Well, let's go on, and then I'll come back to that. So we notice here, immediately, Adam blamed Eve. Adam said, it's the woman, Lord. I was doing just fine until you created. So Adam, <laughs> you know, shifts the blame to God. It's the woman you gave me. And she's the one. Hadn't been for her, things would have been fine. <laughs> it's the woman you put here with me. <laughs> I would have been just fine. It's really your fault, Lord. And often when we face the consequences for what we've done, we try to shift the blame to someone else, don't we? That's one of the first things that comes on us, is that we go, well, you know, it's my wife, or it's my husband, or it's my, you know, my parents did this to me. Yeah, you know, they, <laughs> you, know, you should have seen the way I was raised, and, and so on. We, we try to shift the, and I think that that's one of the things of this generation that you just see increasing exponentially is blaming somebody for, for, you know, what you have done, instead of just owning up and saying, okay, Lord, it's me, I did it, I'm the one. The woman blames the serpent. And what I want you to notice here is that the woman knew instantly that she had been deceived. It didn't take, you know, a, a whole revelation and a whole bunch of time. She knew she'd been, she'd been hoodwinked by this serpent. And sin has put alienation between God and man, between men and women, and between animals and men. Romans 7.11 says, For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So the results then of Adam and Eve sinning and choosing autonomy over dependency upon God is that sin came into the picture and then death with sin comes death. But I want you to notice something here. It says in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. And then to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And I want you to notice that God does not curse Adam and Eve. Yeah, did you ever see that? And I, you know, I, it was kind of a new revelation. God didn't curse Adam and Eve. He didn't curse the human race. He loves, he loves, he, he loves us. He cursed the serpent, and he cursed the ground. 
He hates sin, but not men. We are sinful, but we're not cursed. Walton says, I suggest that God's words are best understood as parental in nature, patiently and sadly describing to Adam and Eve the inevitable consequences of the choices they've made for themselves. So it's kind of a, you know, kind of a little bit different twist on that, and you can try that on and see, you know, see how that fits. But, um, but God was not coming along saying, you know, look how awful you are, I hate you. I curse you. God was saying, oh boy, you know, just like when our kids, we, we catch them with something and, and they've done, done something wrong, their, their hand's in the cookie jar, and they come out blaming their sister. <laughs> and, uh, but God looks at them and, and says, you know, I'm sorry, but I can't trust you now. Um, and, and there are consequences to sin. That's the problem. When we choose independence from God, there are consequences to that. So this one commentator says that the pronouncements were not curses or punishments, but rather God telling them what would happen as a result of the fall. God laid it out that sin and death are going to happen as soon as you you eat from that forbidden fruit. And then God says, okay, here it is. Here's, here's, here's the consequences. And I find, you know, a lot of times I see that with people. People blame God, and what they are really dealing with is consequences of disobeying God, the, the, the consequences of their own sin. And sometimes I see that in my own life, you know. It, it's not that, that God is trying to destroy me. It's that I am trying to destroy me. That's the problem. So behind the fall, then, is a personal spiritual war in the heavenlies. And that's what I want to concentrate on today. The, uh, we talked two weeks ago, we talked a little bit, bit about what is called the Proto-Evangelium, which, which is the first prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So it's set up then that that the seed, singular, of the woman, who would be Christ, right? Uh, The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, or the power of the serpent, but the serpent would strike the heel. And that's what we find happening that the devil comes along and the devil tries to destroy everything that God sets up and God tries to do. And so there is a war that is going on in the heavens that started way before this. And the Bible is a history of the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Adam. So the seed of man and the seed of the serpent And so the Bible records the struggle between good and evil and God and Satan. And and this is, you know, what I really want to emphasize today is that the struggle that we face is not simply good and evil. It is God and Satan. And I, you know, so so many times I hear people, um, they they talk about, you know, how can evil exist? Um, you know, wh- where does evil come from? Well, well, evil comes from Satan. 
And the struggle that there is in, is a struggle in the heavenlies. It's not just between good and evil, right and wrong. It's between Satan and God. And so many people can't understand the existence of evil because they don't understand the existence of the spiritual struggle that's going on between God and Satan, which show up since the beginning of time. Maybe not the beginning of time. We don't know when it happened. But. So there's a personal war being waged in heaven between Satan and God. We know that, Christ, that God overcomes through the death of Christ on the cross, but there's an intense battle being waged over the souls of men. Satan came to steal, kill, and destroy, as it says in, in John 10.10. 10. <clears throat> the thief, Jesus says, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it, have it to the full. So Satan is the thief who's trying to kill and destroy God's work. And, I might add, trying to destroy God's people, us. The thief, Satan, hates God, and he hates God's people. He doesn't just not like them and oppose them. He actually hates us. We, when we are born again, listen to this, we are born into warfare with the enemy of God. We can't defeat him by trying to be good. And that's the whole, you know, that whole kind of social gospel and that whole thing. Well, let's be good people. No, that's not enough. Because there is a war in the heavenlies. The capstone of the spiritual warfare was the birth of Christ in Bethlehem and the death of Christ on the cross. We read it this morning that as soon as Jesus comes into the world, Jesus is born, what happens? Herod tries to kill all the people. Well, he does kill all the uh, youth two years and younger in, younger in Bethlehem in the vicinity. And as soon as Jesus is born, Satan tries to destroy. And from the beginning of time, Satan is attempted to destroy the plan of God. He tempted Eve and brought sin into the world. He tried to destroy the nation of Israel. He tried to thwart Jesus' plan by bringing, uh, of bringing salvation to the world. And he works in the world today to derail the people of God and the works of the people of God. So when you become a friend of God, you become an enemy of Satan. Okay, and that's, that is so crucial that we understand that. That we are born, when we, when we are born again, we are born into the family of God, but we are also born into hostility from Satan. We are not, didn't, God didn't call us just to be good. He called us to be aware, and he called us to be strong. Now we see the fall of Satan in Ezekiel chapter 28. And this is a word um, concerning the king of Tyre, and it says this. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him. Remember we talked about census plenier and that there is a, there's a meaning behind the immediate meeting. The immediate meaning of, and target of this prophecy was the king of Tyre. But by extension, it applies 
to the spiritual warfare in the, hev in the heavenlies and Satan's existence. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in, in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On that day you were created, you, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. So here we see Satan was then a, a guardian cherub, one of, the, one of the princes of the cherubs, or of the, of the angels, and he was perfect in beauty, he was absolutely wonderful, he was perfect in wisdom and so on, and then he chose a wrong path. It says in verse 16, through your widespread train you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you. Satan was with God, God expelled him from the garden. O guardian chair from among the fiery stones, your heart became proud on account of your beauty. Isn't that what so many face in the world today? <laughs> and their beauty and pride and all of that stuff. And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. So since that time, and we don't know when that happened, but we do know that it did happen. Isaiah 14, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, and listen to these I wills, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. You know, they ate of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they tried to make themselves like the Most High. Instead of being subject to him and being dependent upon him, they said, we want to be like him. We want to have what he has. Those who stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth? and made kingdoms tremble. And we see in the book of Revelation, you know, it talks about, uh, you know, the, that Satan is cast down. The man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home. And, of course, we read the end, end of the book, book of Revelation, especially, you know, the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, and find out that Satan is indeed, you know, destroyed in the end. But there is a spiritual battle going on. And if we, as the children of God, do not believe in that spiritual struggle, we are going to be subject to it. We are dependent upon God. We are, you know, and we cannot be independent of him. And we have to realize and understand and act upon the fact that we are an enemy. We have an enemy. We cannot understand the mega story behind the Bible without understanding that there is a spiritual battle going on 
and that the battle is personal, not just ideological. We're not dealing with theory and ideas. We are dealing with persons. There's a profound war between light and darkness, good and evil, that emanates from the personal struggle between Satan and God. God established the Garden of Eden, created man and woman to populate and fill the earth, provided a perfect environment where Adam and Eve could be protected, provided for, and blessed. And they chose to listen to Satan in the form of the servant, serpent instead of believing that God knew what he was talking about. You know, this is what is so sad to me in this day is that people do not understand the mega story behind what the Bible is all about. And so they fall subject to Satan. 1 Peter 5.8 Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. So as believers then, we are born into a struggle. And so Peter says, be self-controlled and alert. And to watch out for this. The enemy, now the good news is, is that, is that Jesus has defeated the power of the enemy. And we have Jesus on our side. But it doesn't mean that, the, that there is not a struggle that's still going on. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And oftentimes when there's, when there's difficulty, we blame people. Just like Adam tried to do it. And, and the woman tried to do it. We blame somebody else. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not people but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We face spiritual warfare as the children of God. Now, we may not like that, but that doesn't change it. That's just the way it is. So the Christian life is not a parlor game, but it's a spiritual battle. Sure, most of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, and C.S. Lewis does a really good job of this war that's going on uh, between, you know, in Narnia. And it's deadly warfare. If we don't understand the warfare part of being a Christian, we will be ineffective in overcoming the power of the enemy. There is a struggle going on, and then, as I said before, when we become the friend of God, we become the enemy of Satan. And Satan will use whatever he can to keep us from fulfilling what God has called us to be and to do. That's just the reality of it. You have, as a Christian, a target on your back. When we enter into God's family, we inherit God's enemies who will resist everything we do and everything that we are. We sign up for spiritual warfare, whether we like it or not. Well, that's the bad news. <laughs> okay. The good news is that we have the Son of God on our side. That's the good news. And that Christ defeated Satan at the cross. Satan is very powerful. And that's why, you know, a lot of people, I think, Christians, make a mistake 
by not understanding that Satan is absolutely more powerful than you are. More powerful than your faith. More powerful than anything. But we have Jesus on our side. We cannot defeat him by ourselves. It took the blood of Christ to defeat Satan. We're not alone in our struggle against the forces of evil. We have all the spiritual weapons that we need at our disposal in order to fight the spiritual battle we face. The good news is that Christ does overcome and we overcome. But we've got to pick up the spiritual weapons that we have. Okay? We can't leave them in the camp <laughs> you know, and run out unarmed and face the enemy. We have the spiritual weapons that God has given to us. 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We have what we need to defeat Satan. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The bad news is, we're in a struggle whether we like it or not. The good news is, we have everything we need to be able to be victorious in that battle. So at the fall, enmity entered the perfect environment that God had created for Adam and Eve, but God provided the means whereby healing could take place. And he does that in our lives as well. It's also important to realize that the initiative was God's. God is the one who brought Jesus on this earth. And it wasn't that, you know, um, some people got together and voted that, that it would be really good if there were a Savior come along. The initiative was God. God did this. And that fact is what distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions. Other religions start with man's quest to find God. And you look at all the other religions, and you, they, you can boil them down to men trying to get to God. Because every man has a yearning in their heart for, for something. There's a hole. There's, a, there's a, an empty place in their lives. And so to be able to fill that, they, they try to do things in order to get to God. But the sending of Christ was God's initiative. He did it. He knew our need. It's, it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever read some of the works of the atheists. And, and what's so interesting, like the Humanist Manifesto, um, they spend probably half of what they write about defending that they're not Christians. <laughs> and and count, trying to counter, somehow counter God. And say, well, I'm not a Christian because... Well, okay, that's nice. But you're still spending all your time trying to fight against God because you are accountable to God. And it doesn't matter where, you know, what you try to conjure up, you are accountable to God. We are all accountable to God. And Genesis starts with, in the beginning, God. The whole essence of the gospel is that God reached out to man through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. The incarnation was God's plan. And reconciliation is a work which has been accomplished. Christ has done it. That's why he came. When he hung on that cross, Christ 
was reconciling the sinful man with a righteous God, a righteous holy God. Reconciliation waits not upon human achievement, but upon human acceptance. The one who requires to be reconciled is the one who provides the means of reconciliation. All the initiative was on God's part. God did it. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. All right, that's important that we, that we, you know, we grab onto that, that, it, that the Christ coming into the world was God's idea, it was God's way of reconciling sinful man to a holy God. Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be any curse. So there's coming a time when there will be no more curse. And the world right now is estranged from the God who created both the men whom God made and the creation itself. And so God, in sending Christ then, you know, we just celebrated Christmas and the coming, the, the birth of Jesus Christ, well, that provided reconciliation between God and man, between men and men, and between the created order and men. So first of all, that it provided reconciliation between God and man. Colossians 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he, that is Christ, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Christ hanging on the cross reconciled us to who were alienated from God, reconciled us back to the God, the holy God, the creator of the universe. But Christ also came to bring men and women together. So as soon as, you know, as soon as the uh, fall happened, Adam blamed Eve and said, you know, it's the woman. It's a woman you brought me, Lord, and, and um, you know, look at, look at what you've done, this woman. And so there was, there was tension between men and women. And God came to bring reconciliation between human beings one to another and reconciliation in marriages. You know, how many marriages have we seen that are torn apart? They're just torn apart. And I, I love the, the illustration that you see sometimes, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a pyramid, and God is at the top, and, and man and wife are at the bottom, and the closer we get to Christ, the closer, the closer we get to each other. And that's what Christ does. Christ brings people together. I mean, you just look at, uh, in Galatians, the acts of the sinful nature... And so many of those acts of the sinful nature that talks about in Galatians chapter 5 are enmity between people. And Christ comes along and, and by the Spirit <clears throat> brings love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. All of those things bring people together. That's what Christ has done. 
But it also brings, eventually, reconciliation between the created order and men. In Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Isaiah 11. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and little child will lead them. The cow will feed with a bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So eventually, all right, we don't see all that taking place now, but eventually the creation itself is going to be brought back into this relationship with God. We don't understand how all that happens and you know, when it happens. It happens, there's a new heaven and a new earth and so on. We don't understand when that's going to happen or exactly how it's going to happen, but we do know that it will happen. So the essence of the cross of Christ was that God was reconciling the world to himself. Men, mankind, men reconciled with men, and even the creation itself reconciled back to God. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, the good news is that Christ came along in order to provide reconciliation. And we just uh, we, we sang it uh, on Friday night, uh, but I'd like to just read this, because it's a wonderful, wonderful hymn anyway. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Yeah, you know that one. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. Okay, and then it goes on. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Now remember, man, God didn't curse man, but he has come to take that curse. Christ came to hang upon the tree and to take the enmity that there was between God and man, between men and man, between the the creation itself, and God came to, to be the answer for that alienation. Far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and make the na makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders and wonders of his love. That's what Christ has done. Far as the curse is found, Christ came to reconcile the world to God. And we praise him for it. What an incredible thing. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, is that God sending, incarnating, in, 
uh, God incarnated into a little tiny child, probably, you know, <clears throat> six pounds, four ounces. <laughs> we don't know how big he was. Or, but God put all of that in a little bitty tiny child. The, the fate of all mankind, the fate of the whole created order, and through that little child, was reconciling the world back to himself. His effort, his plan, his carrying out. God incarnate in Christ, in a little baby. That's what we celebrate. Well, God bless you, and, uh, you know, he's good, isn't he? God is good. <clears throat> Father, we are reminded at all times that your word is the truth, and your word is, all your word is good for teaching. So Lord, let us take this word. Now, I'm not quite so sure about Adam blaming Eve and whether that was truthful, but... <laughs> We know that it is indicative of our spirit. Lord, we're going to have a better spirit, a spirit that takes responsibility, a spirit that lives the type of life that you would have us live. So, Lord, as we go out today, let our hearts be open. Let that, the Holy Spirit be in us, and let us live as your Son has taught us. We ask in his name. Amen. God be with us till we meet again.
insecure. 